little change of face for you this morning, huh? Ron, I'm a little nervous about these here. You know, if the spirit comes upon me, somebody could get hurt. (laughs) Namely me. Let me just start off by saying, you know, I I really love coming to your houses for dinner. (laughs) I'm not inviting myself, but uh, but I really do enjoy coming over and spending time in your homes and looking at the pictures in the hallways. Because there are those notorious pictures that are hanging there with the goofy hairstyles and the weird clothes and the and uh, facial hair and white belts and earth shoes and all sorts of things. And I just love coming over and seeing those old photos because I love to watch the fashions that have come and gone through the ages. It seems like fashions, things that were fashionable, you know, 40 years ago have made a resurgence today and they're fashionable once again. The same can be said for biblical preaching, I think. As we look at church history, Truly biblical preaching has come and gone through the centuries. It has uh, come and gone out of fad. It has come and gone out of fashion many times in the history of the church. And today it is fashionable in our day for preachers to downplay or avoid the topic of sin altogether. They completely neglect the resurrection in their preaching. And nor do they usually speak about the judgment which is coming. There is a future judgment coming upon sin, beloved, and we don't want to be there when it happens, nor do we want anybody else to be there. But we live in one of those times when the latest preaching trend is the equivalent of bell bottoms, white belts and earth shoes and big hair. It may be fashionable at the moment, but it's altogether unappealing and unattractive. And most certainly unbiblical. You need to understand that the church has been placed in the hands of motivational speakers, CEOs, and pastorpreneurs. Pastorpreneurs. What's a pastorpreneur? They don't preach anymore for conviction, they simply share. And at the last Shepherds Conference we were at, Dr. Lawson said, that's not expository preaching, that's suppository preaching. (laughs) This morning I just want to appeal to you to bring back an old trend. Bring back biblical preaching. I want to appeal to you to bring back the old classic style that is the God-ordained preaching of the cross. When we share our testimony, when we share our faith, it is an old paradigm that the apostles first preached and we ought to be preaching the same thing they preached. And so this morning I want to appeal to you. You need to understand that it is not just for the guy in the pulpit. This is for you. This is for you out there because you meet and encounter people through the course of the week, right? You share the gospel with other people. And what is it exactly you're sharing with them? Is it that they have needs that need to be filled? That God God loves you? What is the gospel that we're sharing with people? What is the 
What is the message that we're giving them? And in light of the Upland campaign, I thought this might just be a little motivation. Jim's probably going to take me aside afterwards and say, brother, you got that all wrong. But I want to I want to appeal to you, and I'm going to do that by having you turn to John 16 this morning. And actually, I'm going to back you up and kind of take a running start at the reading back to John chapter 15 and verse 26. John chapter 15 and verse 26. We'll just take a running start at the reading. Jesus says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father. He will testify about me and you will testify also. And it probably is an imperative here and testify also. Because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose it to you, to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. From this passage, I just want to point out to you three gross miscalculations which unbelievers make. And we're going to do that so that we'll know how to confront their error with the truth of the gospel. Unbelievers delude themselves, beloved. They make really bad judgment calls. They make really stupid choices. They make gross miscalculations. I was never really good at math particularly long division, because when you make one little mistake up at the top, what happens to your final product? It's all off, isn't it? Well, unbelievers make three really horrific errors of deadly proportions, and we need to understand how they think. We need to understand how they think so that we can bring conviction with the Spirit-inspired Word of God. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning. 
the context of the passage, if you look back at the text with me, look at verses 5 through 6. This is the last evening of our Lord's earthly life. He's about to die. He's about to die. And as he's heading to the Garden of Gethsemane to spend one last evening in prayer, he's with his disciples and he's just had the last supper with them in the upper room. He begins to instruct his disciples about his imminent departure and death. He begins to tell them that he's going to die. He's going to return to the Father. And so that news being dropped on them is devastating to them. And if you look at the text with me, it was not only that Jesus was departing, but the bad news gets even worse, and that is when I go, they're going to persecute you too. So it's not just me thereafter, it's you too. And these things so saddened the disciples. It, it, it grips their hearts. The verbs here, um, verse 6, these things, uh, uh, sorrow has filled your heart. It's a perfect verb. It means it's, it's there and it stands there as in effect still. They're, they're, it's gripped their hearts. They're saddened. They're grieved to the core that Christ is not only going to die, but that they're in trouble too. Jesus says, these things I have said to you. It's also a perfect verb. It means the words are still kind of hanging in the air. They're still in the ears of the hearers. They're, they're just they're sitting there. The words are ringing in their ears and sorrow is gripping their heart and they're just being overtaken by grief. So verses 7 through 8, Jesus says, but I tell you the truth. It's like a bright ray coming upon them. From through the dark clouds comes this bright ray of light. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's better that I do go away because after I go, the Spirit is coming. The paraclete, the comforter, the helper. And according to Jesus, the, the Spirit's ministry in this passage is essentially threefold. When He comes, these, this is what He will do. He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's number one. Secondly, he will guide the disciples into all truth. That's number two. And third, he will glorify Christ. That's three. The text we're going to look at this morning, in particular, verses 8 through 11, is the convicting ministry of the Spirit. The convicting ministry of the Spirit of God. These three things that we're talking about here, sin, righteousness, and judgment, are Terms in which the world's guilt will be proven objectively. They're wrong and their guilt will be proven in these three areas. And Jesus says when the Spirit comes, that conviction will come through the preaching of the Word of God. The word convict here is a legal term. Just give you a little background. It's a, it means to expose or cross-examine for the purpose of convincing or refuting an opponent. So it was used in legal proceedings. When the Spirit comes, He's going to convict the world. He's going, to, he's going to put them on the bar of God's justice, and they are going to come to the bar, and they're going to be found guilty. Objectively. God's Word, top down, you're guilty before the bar of God's justice. And how would this conviction take place? That's a good question, because it's not necessarily what we may think it is. It's not necessarily an internal conviction that we're talking about here. What we're talking about is through the preaching of the apostles. The apostles 
We're going to testify about Jesus Christ and the conviction is going to come through their preaching of the cross. We could look at Romans 10. Why don't don't you flip over there real quick? Let me just prove this to you. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the... uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. (laughs) However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Okay, so preachers need to preach the gospel. People need to speak the truth of God. And the apostolic witness is contained for us here. The written testimony of the apostles in the word of God. We have that now. So when we speak, we speak what they told us to speak. Does that make sense? Uh, One commentator said this, the world cannot receive the paraclete. Therefore, we must consider his work to be mediated through the church which alone can receive him, and in particular of the spirit-inspired utterances of Christian preachers which convict the world. It's up to us. It's up to us to preach the cross in order that conviction might come. So with that as the context, again, let me just restate what we're after here. We're going to look at three gross miscalculations which unbelievers make so that we can confront their error with the truth of the gospel. And the first one, as you look at the text, it's there in verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. You see that? There's a causal clause there. Three times the expression occurs here. He will convict concerning. He will convict concerning. And in this first one, Jesus specifies the type of sin. It's unbelief. It's unbelief with him. So unbelievers refuse to recognize their own unbelief in the truth of the gospel, believe it or not. A court can convict a man of murder, but only the Spirit of God can convict somebody of unbelief. And that's the reality. So in context, Jesus probably has in mind here the generation of Jews who rejected him as their Messiah. He probably has that in mind. In fact, I'm sure he does. But unbelievers today, the same thing applies to them. They don't need a savior like Jesus if they don't believe they have any sin, right? So what must we do? We must preach sin. And the sin of the world is concentrated in the rejection of Jesus Christ. The rejection of Jesus is not only is not the only sin, but it's sort of the type and the crown of all sin. All sin is concentrated in the rejection of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, the sin of the world equals the crucifixion of Christ. So without the Spirit's conviction, men are unable to believe because of their inability to humble their intellectual pride. We're proud. We think we know it all. But God's Word tells us otherwise. 
The world's unbelief not only ensures that it will not receive life, but it also ensures that it cannot perceive that it walks in death and needs life. Do you understand that? They're blind. They're totally blind to their need. They not only don't think they have sin, they don't realize that they need life. So, what I'm after here this morning is to give you a new paradigm for sharing the gospel or for preaching. So what I'm going to have you do is turn to the book of Acts, and I want to trace and see, that's what Jesus said, is this what the apostles did? That's what he said, is this what they did? And so turn to Acts chapter 2, and look at verses 22 to 23. This is Peter's first sermon. This is the actual arrival of the Spirit, as Jesus had predicted. The Spirit is poured out. Peter begins to preach. And what is Peter's message? I'm okay. You're okay. No. Personal power. No. He says, He was attested to you by miracles and signs and wonders, just as you yourselves know, but you nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Sin. He exposes their sin. Their sin of unbelief in Jesus Christ. Turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 30. Well, maybe that was just a one-time sermon, Peter. Let's see what the next one sounds like. I've got another three-point sermon for you. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging Him on a cross. You're responsible for the death of your Messiah. You're convicted of sin in this matter. Well, okay, well, that's Peter. Well, what about Paul? Well, turn to Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. This is Paul's first missionary journey. He says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. You're enslaved to sin. And the gospel is the good news. You can be freed from it. You can be freed. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Okay, well that's Peter. Well that's Paul. Well, what about John? Well you can turn to John's epistle. 1 John 1.8 If we say we, that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it's sin. It's sin it's sin. It's sin. Folks, the apostles weren't afraid to confront people with their sin, and we aren't supposed to be either. Sinners are guilty. They stand guilty. See, we don't have... I've always been troubled by the word apologetics. Do you know why? Because apology is a defense, right? We don't have to defend the faith. They have to defend their lack of faith. Do you understand that? They're guilty. They're guilty before the bar of God's justice. You are simply preaching the cross of Christ and condemning them of their guilt. 
There's a, um, I probably shouldn't do this. I'm going to regret this later. <clears throat> but I'll go ahead. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Okay, there I said it. If you've ever seen that movie, there is this battle scene between the Black Knight and King Arthur, right? None shall pass. I'm going to do a Pastor David here. None shall pass. So they get into this battle, and King Arthur, they're whacking away with swords and doing all these things, and, and King Arthur lops off the guy's arm, and it's, you know, the blood squirts out everywhere. And, and King Arthur's over there praying, you know, thank you, Lord, and the guy comes over and starts kicking him. Come on. Come on, you pansy. And, and the guy's still wanting to fight him and his arm's off. So Arthur gets mad and he turns around and he lops off the guy's other arm. And the guy says, it's just a flesh wound. He says, it's not a flesh wound. Your arms are off. And so the guy starts kicking him. And so Arthur gets irritated and he chops off his leg. And, and this continues until the guy's basically nothing left but a torso. And he's saying, come back, you chicken. No, I would not recommend that movie to you, but I am simply making an illustration here. Okay? I saw it a long time ago before Christ, okay? The point is that unbelievers are utterly defeated by their sin. Their arms are off, their legs are off, and yet they just think it's a flesh wound. They minimize their sin. They minimize it. And the problem is that the world has become so psychologized now that things that we used to call sin are no longer sin, they're mental disorders. They're health concerns. Well, I've probably told you about this before, but when my wife and I were in Hawaii, I was reading the morning newspaper, and there was an article about there, in there about intermittent explosive disorder. Intermittent explosive disorder. What is that? It's what the Bible calls outbursts of anger. Okay? It's not intermittent explosive disorder. It's uncontrolled anger. It's a sin. So, folks, if we minimize the sin of unbelievers by psychologizing it, by calling it a diagnosis, we allow unbelievers to minimize their own sin. If we do it, they'll do it then they will have no need of a Savior, and our gospel presentations will be weak, and we'll be as guilty as they are. We'll be just as guilty as they are. We'd be guilty of defrauding the public. Do you understand that? Defrauding the public because we would not really be preaching the gospel of Christ. See, we may have good conversations with people. We may invite them over to dinner. We may try to turn a conversation to Christ. But do we ever really get around to confronting sin in their lives? Do we confront their sin of unbelief in the Savior? And I would put it to you this morning that if we don't, then we're missing an essential component of the gospel. This is why sharing the gospel with family, by the way, is so hard. You know? Because what happens? You try to point out sin in their life, and what happens? Hey, I know you. I grew up with you. I know exactly what you did when you were a kid. So we get embarrassed. We clam up. We don't talk. We just avoid the elephant in the room. But, beloved, it's not... It's an opportunity 
to speak for the gospel of Jesus Christ because we can talk, yes, I was a sinner. Yes, I probably sinned against you. But you know what? God has forgiven me in Christ. We miss the opportunity. If we don't talk about sin, we miss the opportunity. Our sin is our past sin before Christ is not something to be embarrassed or ashamed about. It's something we've been forgiven in Christ for. And so we ought to use it as an opportunity. So, one of the grossest miscalculations that they make is that they minimize their own sin. And when they do that, it results in the rejection of their only hope for salvation from that sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, they maximize their own righteousness. They maximize their own righteousness. You can turn back to John 16 and verse 10. He says, Jesus, and concerning righteousness. And you could just insert the verb there. The Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me. The Helper, when He comes, will convict the world concerning righteousness when He comes. So the second causal clause there. Because. And the the because here, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, it seems to be a reference to the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. It's kind of the whole package. I go to the Father. I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to be raised up and exalted. So why is that? Well, the resurrection of our Lord vindicates His righteousness, does it not? When He died, He didn't die for His own sin. He died for our sin. And so the resurrection vindicates His righteousness that He did not die a death for His own sin. Death could not keep Him. Death could not hold Him. Again, the conviction of this truth would come through the preaching of the cross. Through the apostolic preaching of the cross. See, the world believes that its own righteousness is all that is required by God. Right? Its own righteousness. But because men are, uh, I'll use a PC term here, righteousness challenged. People are righteousness challenged. They need the righteousness of Christ to be imputed from the outside in. They don't have it and they need it. And the only place to get it is Jesus Christ. The only righteous person who ever walked the face of this planet. Now, don't miss the change in pronouns here real quick. Notice it goes from I to you. And it does that because Jesus was the paradigm for the disciples to follow. He was the model. He was the model for them to follow. He was the master who was to be followed. And so the paraclete would empower the disciples to continue to follow Jesus and thus convict the world of its empty righteousness. Back to verses 26 and 27. You can also look down to verse 15 of chapter 16. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that He takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So that's what Jesus said. Is that what happened? Well, let me just tell you, Romans 10, verses 2 to 3, you don't have to turn there, but the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. 
for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They need righteousness, but they're unwilling to subject themselves to the righteousness which God has provided in Jesus Christ. So, since I'm suggesting to you a new paradigm again, turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll go back to Peter's first sermon again. Oh, excuse me. Verses 29 to 33. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's still in the ground. And so... When he w- because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. It's a resurrection. It's a resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Well, okay, that was one sermon. What about another one? Well, same thing. Go to Peter's second sermon, Acts chapter 3. Look at verse 14. Notice how he includes in here, but you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Okay, well, that's Peter. That doesn't, what about Paul? Well, turn over to Paul in Galatians again, uh, uh, or not Galatians, uh, Acts chapter 13 when he's speaking to the Galatians. Verses 30 to 37. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. The very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. And what is that promise? That God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you as for the fact that he raised him from the dead. No longer to return to decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he also says to another in another Psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. He's talking about the resurrection again. And, you know, it doesn't say it specifically, but Paul speaking to Felix and Drusilla later on in the book of Acts in Acts 24 says, He has a three-point sermon there, and he begins to speak to them about sin, righteousness, and self-control. I'm sorry, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And my guess is the righteousness that he was speaking of there is more than likely the resurrection of the righteous one, Jesus Christ himself. Now, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In him. You know, during door to door evangelism, uh, what is the one thing we hear when we when we ask people, why should God let you into heaven? What's the answer? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I never killed anybody. I'm not an axe murderer. I've never cheated on my wife. They maximize their own righteousness. When we compare ourselves to each other, we're not so bad. Right? I look pretty good compared to most of you. But compared to a holy God, beloved, how far short do you fall? Infinite. Infinite. They maximize their own righteousness. It's a gross, horrific error. Many who give their testimonies completely overlook this fact, by the way. This essential component of the gospel. We don't measure up to the perfection of God. We are in desperate need of righteousness. We don't have it. We're in a state. We have a problem. Where are we going to get righteousness from? It can only come from outside of ourselves in, right? We need the righteousness of God imputed to our account. But when most people give you their testimony, they say, well, I believe Christ died for me. But they don't talk anything about their need for righteousness. They completely overlook that fact. You cannot come before a holy God being a defiled sinner. Even if Christ dies for your sins, if I were to use an algebra equation, your negative 10, and I wasn't very good at math, so work with me on this. Your negative 10. If Christ dies for your sins, where does that get you? That gets you to a zero. Your sins have now been paid for. You're now a zero. Congratulations. What do you need to come before a holy God? You need perfect righteousness and you don't have it. And the only way you can get it is by faith in Christ's righteousness. Being imputed to your account on your behalf. That gets you to a positive 10, if I could say that. That gets you to a positive infinite number, if I could say that. But I'm using the illustration here. All analogies break down at some point. And that one probably broke down a long time ago. But you understand what I'm saying? You need righteousness and you don't have it. Sinners need righteousness. They need perfection to come before a holy God and they don't have it. And Christ's righteousness was vindicated and proven by his resurrection. So if you don't speak about the resurrection... How are they going to know about the righteousness of Christ? Let me just ask you a question. How often is the resurrection part of your gospel witness? How often do you speak of the resurrection? See, it was a cornerstone of apostolic preaching. They were eyewitnesses to one of the most significant events in human history, probably the most significant event in human history. Somebody came back from the dead after how many days? 
Yeah. They came back from the dead. He was dead, and now he's alive. See, Christ, infinite worth, infinite value. What Jim was talking about this morning, the Son of God, crucified, and yet coming back from the dead and living now always to make intercession on behalf of believers. See, but we don't talk about it because we're embarrassed. I remember Shirley MacLaine, right? Out on a limb. It's like if we talk about resurrection, people think we've lost it. People come back from the dead. Turn to Acts chapter 26. Let me show you something. If you speak of the resurrection, you will be ridiculed. I guarantee you. You'll be laughed at. You'll be thought an intellectual pygmy. Acts chapter 26, verse 23. This is Paul before Agrippa. And by the way, the people that he's witnessing to here, Agrippa and Bernice, are brother and sister in an immoral relationship. Very strange. But that doesn't cause Paul to back down at all. And Paul gives his testimony. And in verse 23, he says that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, are you out of your mind? Your great learning is driving you mad. People don't come back from the dead. Oh, yes, they do. One person did. Jesus Christ. The only righteous man never walked the face of the planet. And notice what he says in verse 28. In a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Paul says, oh, I wish you would. Even today, I wish you would. See, the apostles preached the righteousness of Christ displayed in the resurrection, exaltation, and ascension of Christ. They most certainly did not proclaim self-righteousness, personal power, any such foolishness that the church proclaims today. God forbid that we should ever allow unbelievers to maximize their own righteousness. If we allow it, we undermine the gospel itself. Isaiah 64, 6, right? And I don't want to take that verse out of context. That's speaking about Israel. Their, their righteousness was like filthy rags. They had so abused the loving kindness of God that their, any righteousness that they thought they had was nothing but a pile of dirty rags. But if that was true for Israel, how much more true do you think it is for us? There is only one perfectly righteous person, and it's Jesus Christ. And His righteousness comes to us by faith. That's the only way to get it, beloved. So, we've seen two gross miscalculations at this point. Unbelievers minimize their own sin. They maximize their own righteousness. And the third gross miscalculation that they make is that they marginalize God's judgment. Verse 11. Go back to John Chapter 16 and verse 11. Concerning judgment, 
because the ruler of this world has been judged. The word judged here is a perfect verb again, which means it's an action that has taken place in the past and is still ongoing effects today. In other words, Satan stands as judged. It's over. He's done. He's judged. He's convicted. See, the world believed that it had rightly judged Christ and itself, but when they crucified Christ, they condemned themselves. The ruler of this world and the world uh, refers to the realm of unbelievers held in Satan's grip. Satan now stands condemned even though this world is currently held in his power. The point here is that the cross was the absolute defeat and condemnation of the prince of this world and anybody who would take sides with him. The death of Jesus involved necessarily the downfall of Satan. So on the basis of this historical event of the crucifixion, one author said, men may now be convinced by the spirit of the fact of judgment and thus of their own pending judgment by God. Satan's been judged and stands judged and anybody who sides with him will be judged along with him. That's the point. But unbelievers marginalize the coming judgment. They put it off. They put it off. It's kind of like balancing your checkbook. I'll just keep putting it off and maybe one day, I don't know, I'll get a windfall or something and money won't matter anymore. But just put it off. Put it off. And you think immediately of Noah. At least I do. I think of Noah, right? He's building the ark. He gets a... A word from God. He's building the ark. And what are, what's everybody doing? They're standing around laughing at him, mocking him. There's no judgment coming. Come on, a worldwide flood. Are you kidding me? It's not even raining. I don't even feel any rain. But, again, since I'm suggesting to you a paradigm for your preaching, I want you to turn to the book of Acts again. And let's, that's what Jesus said. Let's see what the apostles did. Peter's first sermon again, Acts chapter 2, look at verses 34 and 35. This is Peter quoting Psalm 110. This quote occurs frequently in the New Testament. It's probably one of the most popular recurring quotes. Verse 34. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's not nice language there. What we're talking about is when a, when a conquered king would come in, he would take, when a king took over a country and conquered them, he would bring in the conquered king and he would have him kneel before him, and he would put his feet on his back. And he would demonstrate to everybody that this guy has now been conquered. He'd kill his sons before the king's own eyes, and then he'd put out the king's eyes, more than likely, or cut off his thumbs and his toes, and he would bring him in, and he would kneel him in front, and he would set his feet on his back. Why would he do that? To absolutely humiliate the man in front of everybody. What we're talking about here is judgment. We're talking about judgment. 
A defeated king uses a footstool. And notice what the passage says. Sit at my right hand. This is, this is the Lord said to my Lord. This is God speaking to Jesus in sort of this inner Trinitarian conversation. And he says, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, that was Peter's first sermon. Well, look at Acts chapter 3, verse 23. This is his second sermon. Start in verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, to whom you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. How to make friends and influence people, right? That's, that's judgment that we're talking about. Acts chapter 13. Here again we have the Apostle Paul speaking to the Galatians. Acts chapter 13, verses 40 to 41. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe though someone should describe it to you. Perish. Perish. Paul in Acts 17.31 again. Uh, We haven't looked at that one yet, but Acts chapter 17, verse 31. You can actually start in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There's the proof again. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, it says they began to sneer. They began to sneer again. But others said, we'll hear from you again on this matter, Paul. You think of Paul before Felix and Drusilla, Acts 24, sin, self-control, and the judgment to come. That was his three-point message. See, the message is consistent. The message is consistent through the book of Acts. That's what Jesus said the Spirit was going to do through the preaching of the cross. And then we get to the book of Acts and we see the preaching. That's exactly what happened. They preached the message of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and people either liked it or they didn't. They either repented or they got really mad. But either way, the message was consistent. So if the apostles preached about judgment, then so should we. See, if we believe that the book of Revelation is the inspired word of God, right, then we ought to be preaching a judgment to come. Unbelievers need to be warned. That's part of your job description is to warn them from the wrath. Warn them about the wrath to come. It is the wrath which is coming. It's coming. And nobody will escape it except for the church. And by the way, if you were to think of this as a logical kind of a third leg to a stool, if unbelievers refuse to repent of their sin and embrace the righteousness of Christ, then all they have left is that third leg, 
the judgment of God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 26 to 27. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Look at Revelation 20, 11 to 15. It's coming. Judgment is coming. John 5, 26 to 29, Jesus talks about two resurrections there. One is a resurrection to life. The other is a resurrection to judgment. Judgment. Beloved, what torment it will be for those who slip into eternity to have died and be sitting around waiting for the final judgment. Can you imagine what they will be thinking? They'll be in conscious torment as it is, but knowing that ultimately eternal death is coming. Do you understand that? They've sided with the losing team. They've lost. And all that they can wait for or hope for is judgment. It's a fearful thing. And after the first two minutes in hell... Their opinion in the matter will be changed very quickly. They may mock it now, but they won't be mocking it later. See, this is really hard for us to preach, you know? This is, this is a hard message. This is not easy. It doesn't draw a crowd. We don't get 40,000 on a Sunday because of it, right? Coming judgment does not make us popular. We may not get invited over for dinner. We may not have people name our babies after us. But if we don't preach the coming judgment, beloved, we might as well tear Revelation out of our Bible and call our missionaries home. What would be the point? Why would we ask our missionaries to risk life and limb if there were not a judgment coming? I can't think of one. So, we've seen these three gross miscalculations. They minimize their own sin. They maximize their own righteousness. They marginalize God's judgment. We have to confront these errors if we have any hope of bringing the Spirit's conviction to these people. Let me just tell you, in A.D. 35, there was a young man uh, full of faith in the Holy Spirit. You know who I'm talking about. Acts chapter 7. He's a gifted preacher. He's appointed an early deacon there. Prototypical deacon. His name was Stephen. Witnesses said his face shone like the face of an angel. And he preached according to this message. He preached this message. Acts chapter 7 and verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. There's sin. 
Acts 7.52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who keep who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. He's talking about the righteousness of Christ again. Sin, righteousness. And guess what? He never made it to point three. They got so irritated with points one and two that they stoned the man to death. So we're called to proclaim this message, whether we get three thousand people responding or whether we get stoned to death. The message doesn't change. Because that's how God convicts the world of its sin, of the righteousness of Christ, and of the judgment to come. See, Martin Luther said the body they may kill, but what? God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Can there be more than this? This isn't the only way, obviously, to share the gospel. Can there be more than this? Absolutely. Should there be less than this? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Paul's words to Timothy, I think, are instructive here. He said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths. In light of that coming judgment, Timothy, this is what you're supposed to preach. So I solemnly charge you, beloved, preach the word. Preach the word. If these three miscalculations characterize your life, if you've made the same mistake of thinking, hey, I'm going to avoid the judgment. There's no judgment coming. I don't need righteousness. I'm a pretty good person. I don't have any sin. Let me tell you a story about a parachutist. I like to watch this show called Extreme Videos. Have you seen that show? Some bonehead got the idea that he was going to jump out of an airplane and parachute in one open door of an airplane hangar and fly into the airplane hangar and parachute right out the other entrance. How smart do you think that was? Okay, as he's approaching the ground at, I don't know, how many hundreds of miles an hour, right? And he realizes he's off angle a little bit and his parachute catches on the side of the door jamb and it slams him into the concrete airplane hangar, throws him across the airplane hangar, breaks nearly every bone in the guy's body. At what point do you start thinking this is not a good idea? But that's nothing. That is a minor miscalculation compared to you miscalculating these three things. That would be minor. Folks, miscalculating your eternal destiny is a huge miscalculation. Huge. What are you waiting for? If God has so worked in your life that you are disgusted by your sin, you don't want to do it that way anymore. 
and you're looking to live your life to be pleasing to God, if God is at work in your life that way, if you want to be delivered from the wrath of the Almighty God, then I want to appeal to you this morning to forsake your sin and embrace the cross of Christ. Embrace the risen Christ. He alone offers the righteousness that you need to come before a holy God and make you right with your Creator. He alone can deliver you from the wrath to come. Don't miss the opportunity, beloved. Lay hold of the forgiveness that God is offering you in Christ. Do it today. I'll have some folks by the lighted cross here after the service. If God has so worked in your life that you would like to pray to receive Christ or you have other issues you want to talk about, there will be some folks there that you can talk to. Beloved, now is the day of salvation. Embrace the Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we have only now for you to take your word and to drive it deep within our hearts. Father, please cause us to be bold with the gospel, to not short sell it or to leave parts of it out because we're embarrassed or we're ashamed or or we don't have the courage. God, may it never be that we would short sell your word. Please, Lord, help us to communicate truth in order that we might correct the errors of unbelievers. Lord, I'm mindful of the early, the early church. They had never really prayed that you would change the hearts of believers. Father, what they prayed for was that you would grant them boldness to proclaim the gospel. And Father, we pray that same thing this morning with the Upland campaign looming, our Father. Lord, give us boldness to be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us the gospel of salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may your spirit bring conviction to a lost and dying world. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.